Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today's episode, I sat down with Matt Wood. Matt just finished climbing Mount Everest and Lhotse within a 24-hour period, and his story is just incredible in the intricacies and things that you don't even think about when you do take on that type of endeavor about you know having to decide before you even start climbing if you are going to help a climber who's in trouble and sacrifice your bid to the top of Everest in order to save somebody's life or not. And that is a decision that you do discuss with your Sherpas and the people that you are trying to get to the top of Everest with before you start the climb. And we kind of go into a little bit of that and the psychology behind that throughout this episode. Um, if you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do it on Patreon. It's a platform that you can support a monthly donation, $1, $5, whatever you want. It's always helpful. Um, if you can't donate, no worries. Subscribing right now, pulling your phone out, subscribing to my podcast is awesome and tremendously helpful. Writing a review on iTunes is also extremely helpful. And I really appreciate all of that and appreciate you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Matt Wood. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm sitting here with a giant misfit and reject, somebody who's trying to accomplish things that very few people on earth have accomplished. And he's on six out of seven of the tallest peaks in the world, just came down from Everest. He's a 30-year-old dude, a good friend of mine, Matt Wood. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chapin. <laughs> it's Thanks. nice to have you, dude. Yeah. Matt's in a huge transitional period. Like myself right now, we just kind of parted ways with Nicaragua, if you will, for a moment, hopefully not forever to start new ventures as we'll get into later in the episode. I myself am kind of moving away into, I think, new avenues in life. And I think, yeah, it's just changes on the horizon. You're in Newport Beach now where we're having this conversation, California. Place is unreal, man. First time here? First time here. Um, I grew up in Northern California, came down a few times, but uh, just the vibe and the, the proximity of the ocean and, and uh, just the way everybody's it kind of kind of carries their stoke down here. It just seems like a, a good fit coming back from Nicaragua after, man, almost eight years. And what an eight-year ride it was. Because Matt walked into the bar that I was working at eight years ago. I remember uh, that, Looking yeah. to buy a surfer, which I sold him, which I found out a year ago was the shittiest board he ever so got. So bad. So bad. That was so Yeah, that's funny, and, man. Uh, I remember I got there late at night, kind of figuring out what was going on. Super friendly guy behind the bar. He's looking up on these boards. I actually drove all the way up to Papoyo trying to buy a board couldn't really figure out where safari charters was any 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 what was going on up there came back all the way to higante popped into the you know the hostel the last spot with lights on and and there's shaping behind the bar super nice guy big smile like yeah man pop on back here see what you want kind of picked his brand on what board looked good and i selected one and uh i think i still own that board today even though it sucks yeah, not a great board. <laughs> great board. <laughs> That's funny. I guess nostalgia sometimes sticks with us. But um, yeah, maybe give us a little bit of your history because you've done a lot. I mean, just the way you came into uh, Newport today, yesterday, you kind of just like make decisions and you just go. Like you, 
I know there's a lot of planning that goes into the stuff that you do, the extreme stuff, like yeah. the mountaineering. Sure. But you do seem to have that type of like make a decision, you just go and do it and figure it out as you as you go. Yeah, I think that's kind of always been part of my DNA makeup. I'm definitely more. I'd rather go do something than talk about it, which is, uh, you know, so you'll you'll probably notice that today. I'm not not a huge talker. I'd rather go. I'd rather go. You know, do something uh, than reflect on it. But it's also part of the story, man. So you know, I make an effort to kind of relive the, the cool things we, we did and, and uh, you know, spread the good word. Um, but, yeah, came down, went to the University of Colorado, uh, did a bunch of climbing there, um, came down right after graduation. Nicaragua was working at Guacalito um, de la Isla as a financial analyst. I, I studied finance in, in Boulder and then uh, went down and kind of transitioned into construction. Uh, had a really good boss, John Pippett. Uh, he was just a super cool new student out of Philadelphia. Um, he was a great mentor to me. We started building homes, building condos, and then he left. I went out on my own and built a, built, built a few few homes where was involved in some pretty cool projects. Built myself a home down there and my family and, and built a little hotel called Michelli's on the Beach in Higante, which is where I got to spend more time with you and the, and the Higante family down there. Right. Talk us, talk us through a little bit about um, your your initial impression of Nicaragua and then the, the business venture that you chose to get into with the, the hotel. Sure. Michelle's because I'd been in the hotel business for a few years. You came in and you actually were the first one to bring into a, like a more of like a premier kind of like nice higher end hotel accommodations in a very small fishing village that we hadn't really seen yet. Um, and in hindsight now, I mean, this is eight years prior to this point in time. Like, how was that investment for you? Did it pay off? Was it a good kind of, did you see the, the market in the right way at the time? Yeah. I, I always say, man, if we were, if I came out of college trying to be a millionaire or a multimillionaire, I would have gone to wall street or I would, I would have gone to Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I went down to Nicaragua to see one to learn a language, uh, you know, to, to see, I had spent some time in third world countries before. Um, and, and I knew the area, um, Growing up, we, we were family friends with the Nicaraguan family, so we had come down a bunch, and I had spent a bunch of time in that southwestern uh, Emerald Coast area. And and I was working at Guacalito, sitting at a bar, and I met a, my business partner, Sergio Arguello, a, a Nicaraguan lawyer, really good guy, uh, just an honest guy, and just exuded that, whatever that is, where you're like, man, I want to go into business with that guy. Um, and so we kind of worked some things out. I, I put together a business plan. He was going to do a, a hotel restaurant bar down in Higante. And I kind of said, Hey man, look at the economy of scale here. If we do, we have to build a well anyway. We have to build, you know, X, Y, and Z anyway. I'd love to have you as a partner if you're interested. And, and we sat down, looked at the numbers and, you know, away we went. Um, I think we had maybe one or two months that were, you know, we lost money out of, you know, four or five years. Um, not here saying that, you know, I'm going to put my kids through college from it. Right. But it was, it was good, man. It was an awesome experience. Awesome. You know, team down there that we're, you know, we're still trying to keep, uh, kind of apart even through all this, you know, tough time that the crowd was going through right now. Um, so absolutely, man, a hundred, it's been a great, great experience opening a business down there and just being part of that super small community and family that we all, you know, that we all know and, and love down there. And I always say going down to, to Nicaragua was, it was such a cool place to be in my twenties. Um, if you can handle your shit, you know, like if you, if you have any demons in there, whether it be, you know, drugs, 
pills, women, booze, whatever it may be, there's no rules down there and that place will eat you alive. We've both seen it. That's, that place will, will chew you up, man. And, and, uh, but if you can, if you can, you know, handle yourself and you're at a point in your life where you feel good about that and you can enjoy a beer on the way home from work, you know, driving on those dirt roads and, and that's the way it should be. In my, in my, you know, the way I see it, you should be able to have a beer in your cup holder and listen to your music and, and cruise back from work after a good long day and, and, you know, even though there's no rules, that's what we all, you know, that's what I love about that place is it's, it's the wild, wild west and it's just a good place to be. Yeah, I think, and I don't want to go too deep into it. We've talked in past episodes about the political situation down there. And, you know, it's unfortunate for the people because, you know, a lot of gringos and Nicaraguans do rely on tourism. The one thing I would like to ask is, you know, now that tourism has dried up, have you closed up your doors for the time being or are you still open? and operational as a hotel we're still open man we're, we're definitely hanging on and subsidizing what's going on down there but that core of you know four or five people that have been so good to us we're kind of trying to do everything we can to keep you know keep them with jobs because because no one really has anywhere to go down here right we're so blessed to have visas that we can come up to the states when when things get 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 tough so we're doing everything we can to keep to keep those guys um you know working and, and show them some of the love that they've showed us over the past you know five years yeah, I hear you. There's a lot of business owners that are doing the same. And, yeah. Uh, we are blessed to have that freedom to leave and, and come to a place where it's very easy to make money mm-hmm. when you, you know, put your head down and just work at totally. anything. It's pretty totally. easy. And spend it. And spend it too. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Right. Um, but now, yeah, transitioning to like your giant accomplishment. You just came down from Everest. What was it like three weeks ago? Two weeks ago? Yeah. Ago? I think a month ago now. A month ago? Yeah. Um, what was the motivation to take on the, um, goal of trying to summit the seven biggest summits in the world. Yeah, I think the uh, I think it all came from uh, just spending time in the backcountry and in the woods. I think was ingrained in me at a young age, going to Yosemite with my mom and and going backpacking with some of my best friends and my godfather. And uh, we just spent a lot of time driving up to the Western Sierra as a as a as a kid and learn how to fly fish, you know, in the in the high Sierra and pulling out little trout and just being comfortable in a tent and being comfortable under the trees. And, you know, we, we, uh, after high school, I spent a year down in Patagonia with two of my best friends climbing, doing a lot of cool rock climbing and, and mountaineering as well. And, and, um, so I think I, and then, and then in Colorado, we, we, we did a lot of climbing and, and, uh, just spent a lot of time outdoors. And so I think as, you know, as, as you spend these, you know, this time in these adventures, as you, you climb these mountains sooner or later. At some point, you climb enough, you know, enough big ones. Everest kind of comes knocking, and it's definitely not the hardest for me, or the coldest, or or the scariest. Um, it's definitely the highest, but uh, it's it's tough because it's a lot of time, and it's a lot of time away from your loved ones, and it's expensive. So you kind of have to be in a position where you can afford, you know, to to put the money there but you also have to be a, in a point of your life where you can one physically do it but two also have the time to do it right a lot of people that have the disposable income to do something like that or you know have one vacation a year for a week or wh- whatever it is that can't you know take that time away from their their loved ones or their family or you know any way you want to you want to put it you know people are dying up there you know we we saw people die up there and and uh you know I don't have any kids and so who knows if I had a kid maybe I you know put a different value on the, you know, what, what it's worth to, to follow, you know, follow that dream. So I remember sitting with you having discussed this probably a year ago 
I mean, and the day it had been set, you'd already got the permits and it was, it was on. And I remember being struck by the confidence that you had of your being able to accomplish getting to the top and down. Um, and he said something that will always stick with me. He's like, of course, there's always variables you can't control, but this is what I do. You know, and the people who normally die are the people who just go up as tourists and they don't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that always struck me as, you know, obviously being very confident, but to bring a very rational point of view into it where it's like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense where it's like, I'm a surfer. And if I go out and surf big waves, it's very calculated. It's something I do. Right. And, and, and yes, there's things in situations I can't control, but mm-hmm. then there's people who paddle out in situations they don't belong in. Totally. And then they pass yeah. away. Yeah. Um, so that was always something that I, I still take with me when any, everything I do and I talk to people about, but I mean, did you, were people really passing away dying when you were up there? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately there were, I think, um, I think six people died, uh, between the North side and the South side, the North side being Tibet, and the South side being Nepal. We went up from Nepal and you go up kind of in, in summit rotation. So you take a couple of weeks hiking. We flew in, flew into an airport called Lukla from Kathmandu. And Lucas apparently statistically the most dangerous air, airport in the world is this really short little airport airport on a on a pretty intense in, incline. So you land kind of going uphill. So you come through this valley, this cloudy valley, and then you slam down. It's a super short runway. Um, and I've got I've got this rad video of it. It's, it's an intense kind of impact. And then when you're flying out two months later, you kind of go you're going down down down, and then you just whoo, drop. And then the plane catches itself and kind of flies out. But this year there wasn't any accidents, but I think, um, and maybe last year there wasn't any either, but I think they've averaged one aircraft incident per year at Lukla. But anyway, we, we hiked up. It took us about two weeks to hike up. We climbed a, a peak called Lobache, uh, to acclimate 20,000 feet. Emily, my girlfriend came to uh high camp with us. And, um, and then once you get up to base camp, man, it's, there's probably, and there's probably 500 people at base camp on the south side between the Sherpa uh, and the climbers and and just in the cooks and everybody that's involved. And that's kind of your home base for, you know, a month, a month and a half while you make these summit rotations. And so you go up, you know, to camp one uh, and then you come down and you go up to camp two and then you come down. And then so, you, so you're acclimating and you're, you're kind of always climbing high and sleeping low and coming back to base camp. And that's just kind of a the system that they've figured out over the past, you know, 50 years. And so finally on our summit rotation, when we've gone through all this, we're up at camp three, which is halfway up the Lhotse face. So to get to camp one, you go through the, the infamous ice fall that you've heard of. Um, what's it called? Uh, the Kumbu ice fall. And, and that's where it takes a lot of skill that, and, and people have, like it's, have collapses or something. That's but. the issue there is that you, you, a lot of the risk, usually a lot of the mountains I've climbed, most of them, um, you're, you're in control of your own risk. You know, if you don't fall, you're probably going to be okay. Um, but here you've got all these big seracs and crevasses and blue ice up What's above a you. What's so, like a big, uh, so these big valleys were formed by glaciers, right, as they came down. And some of those glaciers, you know, as they melted out, some of the high, and some of these glaciers can be, you know, a mile deep, right? And so some of the, on these huge valleys, you know, 300 feet up, there can be remnants of these glaciers that are way, way up there, um, still kind of fixed to the rock. Um, and they slowly come down over time. But um, the Kumbu Icefall is kind of in this tight little valley as you go up. It's probably, you know, it's probably, you know, 1,500 feet up and, you know, a half mile in distance. So you're going up pretty, 
incline. It's all broken, that, you know, brutal ice that you're kind of weaving your way through. And you've, and you've got these, you know, these dangerous just factors all around you, whether it be the ice fall itself, which is collapsing and moving as the, you know, throughout the day as the ice heats up. I mean, you're looking at these huge seracs, both on the west shoulder of Everest and uh, Noopsy um, above you to the right. And it was two or three years ago that one came down and killed, I think, nine Sherpa. So it's like in the forefront of your mind, you're seeing, you're, you're going through there at night, trying to get through as fast as you can. Because um, that's the coldest. Because that's the coldest. So that's so it's when it's the most out. stable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so you're, you're moving as fast as you can, but you're, you're looking at these things every time you go through. And so... I, I had never really experienced having so much of the real danger out of your hands. You can do things to kind of mitigate the risk, but it's it's never com- you know fully you know it's never it's never, you're never fully comfortable. Even at base camp, um, when the earthquake happened in 2015, I believe, um, you know, 25 people died at base camp from off of Pumori. A, a huge avalanche came down. So so Everest is a lot of the risk on Everest are, are stuff coming from above you which I didn't realize going into it. And so it's, you know, it's a month and a half of, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, hearing this, you know, loud crack thunder coming down and you can't see where it's coming from, but you still, you know, jump out of your bag, unzip your tent, look around to try to figure out what's going to happen. Is this stuff going to reach you? And you learn as you're there. And the first one you see, you're like, holy cow, man, like this thing's going to fucking kill me. But and then and then it stops and and then you see another you one that's bigger. You see it coming. Toward, in the day, oh yeah, you see these things come off, you know, two thousand feet up, and you creates this huge snow cloud and this huge avalanche. But it's you know a mile away or two miles away, and so it gets down to the valley floor and it doesn't have enough oomph to get to get to you. And you kind of learn how high they are and how big you are, you know, how safe of a distance you want. We were lying at uh, at base camp uh, one night, and a thunderstorm came in, in the middle of the night. And nobody, we, we were, there's a lot of experience up at base camp. They say the Kumbu Valley is kind of the mountaineers. That's where, that's kind of the, the place to be as a mountaineer in the world because that's where the big money is, right? So the best, you know, a lot of the best mountaineers in the world are there. And no one had ever seen a, uh, a uh, thunderstorm come in there in their 10 years. They've never seen pre-monsoon, which is when we were there, have a thunderstorm come in. And so one came in in the night. And we're all asleep and lightning hits and no one sees it. But we all wake up to this huge boom of thunder. And, uh, Mike and a couple of other guys that have spent 10, 15 years, years up there, like, dude, we're dead. Like, that was, that's, that whole, the entire mountain's coming down on us. We are so fucking dead. I'm not even going to get out of the tent because I want to die with my, my feet dry in my sleeping bag, you know? And uh, then, you know, five or ten seconds later, the next lightning bolt hits, and everyone's just like, oh, thank God, dude. It's, <laughs> it's lightning and thunder. That sounds highly stressful, dude. Like, totally. the whole month is just, you're under stress every day. Totally. And it's you, but it's also your loved ones at home. It's also your family, right? There's a lot of people you're carrying, carrying along with you, and, and you know, you know how it is when you're not there. You, you always seem to make it, make it seem worse in your own mind than it really is kind of thing, especially for, you know, moms and girlfriends and, and whatnot. This love, you this did a great ones. job, man, keeping us all in the loop with your uh, feeds. And yeah. Thank God for technology. It's and you made a great video, which I'll put in the show notes so people can see your cool. little cool. 15-minute reel you did, which is epic. Yeah. Um, how do you – do you pick your Sherpa? Or how does that – does it get allocated to you? Allocated to you? Or like – You can pick – straws. Yeah. <laughs> you can pick your Sherpa. I've done a lot of climbing with uh, our expedition leader. His name is Mike Camel at uh, sevensummits.com. He's – I think he's done Everest – 
uh, six or seven times. They're really, really good. A uh, good friend of mine and a, and a really good climber and now a really good expedition leader. Um, anyone has any, any, any dreams of getting to the top of the world or climbing any of these mountains, he'd be a good guy to talk to cause, and he'd be happy to just give you any insight or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. But, um, I had climbed with Mike a bunch and he had always told me about this, this Sherpa called Tendi. Uh, and Tendi has summited Everest 15 times, perfect English, uh, owns a, uh, a, you know, part of a clothing company in his own kind of company in, uh, in, in Nepal called Tag Nepal. So it was clear to me from pretty early on that he was the Sherpa that I wanted, um, with me. Yeah. So Tendi was a, Tendi is a super, super competent Sherpa. Um, I had been told that he was one of the three strongest Sherpa in the world and he was, and he was just the nicest guy you'll ever come across. And, and all this turned out to be true. Um, and so I paid, I think I paid a little more. We were talking about kind of price, Everest price tags earlier. And yeah, so can you just give us a spectrum of like how this goes totally. for somebody who wants to get to the top of Everest, what's going to cost them? People can, one of my buddies climbed it for, I just asked him the other day, I think he climbed it for 12 grand unsupported, uh, just buying your own permit. And this is five years ago. So it might not be possible, but maybe you could do it for 15 grand now, but he just bought his own permit. He was his own Sherpa, shuttled his own loads, carried his own oxygen, uh, which is the extreme, right? Very, very few people do that. And then on the other side, you know, people will spend up a, to 140 grand, you know, getting the full, you know, the, everyone says the chocolate on your pillow and, you know, having everybody do everything for you. And so if you want a one-on-one Western guide, uh, that's usually kind of probably pushing a hundred, hundred, 120 grand. Western um, guide meaning like a white person, like a, a Western guide. European. Yeah. Euro- European guide or, or, you know, uh, American guide or probably Canadian guide. Um, and then you can do a one to four Western guide. Uh, and everyone always has their own Sherpa or you can do a kind of a one-on-one, uh, Sherpas, which I, what I did because that's what I could afford. And, um, this Sherpa turned it out being just, you know, Mike's point was, Hey man, this guy's going to be more experienced than any Western guide will speak, you know, Sherpa. Uh, so we'll have, you know, all the insight. He knows everybody on the mountain. So that's cheaper than a Western guy. Totally. Totally. Like yeah. 20, 30 grand. Yeah. I probably spent closer to 45, 50. Okay. Um, after you get all the oxygen and, and the permit and, uh, and then we, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, um, we also climbed Lhotse as well, which was a, uh, it's the fourth tallest mountain in the, in the world. So that was a goal we kind of set earlier on. Like in the same day? In the same day. Yeah. We, we wanted to climb two. The goal we set, we were kind of bouncing it around the goal we set because not, not, there's only been a handful of people that have climbed two 8,000 meter peaks anywhere in the world, uh, under 24 hours. And it's because this is really the only place that you can do it. Um, but it's a big day, right? You going up to climbing the tallest mountain in the world, coming down, getting a few hours of sleep and then, and then going up and climbing the fourth tallest mountain in the world, Lhotse. Um, but it's doable. It's doable. And I was in the best shape of my life and a lot of things had to go right gear wise physically, mentally, weather-wise, uh, and everything, everything totally came together for us. But I'll, I'll get into that. So anyway, so Tendi was the man. Um, he, uh, he got us, you know, he, he was with me the whole way through the icefall and, and on our summit rotation, we were going up, uh, through the icefall to camp one, up to camp two, up to camp three, which is halfway up the Lhotse face. And right when we were pulling out of camp three that morning, we were one of the first people out of camp that day. Uh, and we kind of get right over this little Berkshire, which is kind of a 
a little break in the in the glacier, and you, you, we get up over it, and and uh, there's as soon as I see him, I'm like, man, this guy's in trouble. I know this guy's in trouble. And uh, he was a he was a Russian, uh, really experienced climber that was trying to climb, I believe, Lhotse, um without oxygen. And uh, you see a handful of guys up there climbing without oxygen. Which and, is, can you explain the audience what that means and why it's dangerous? I mean, I had I had no idea how there's been. So a good way to put it in perspective is there's 8,000 people that have climbed Everest now. Um, there's been 200 to climb it without oxygen. And those are the, you know, the rock star. Like the superhumans. Those like guys genetically are, made for it. Totally, totally. I don't, I, I believe I couldn't have climbed it without oxygen. It's, uh, you know, I was actually shocked how much oxygen. And as soon as you put on that gas, it's like, holy shit, man. This is like God's nectar. You're up there, like your headaches goes away. Um, you're just, you're on the juice, man. You're, you're feeling good. I wouldn't say it makes it easy, but it makes it a reality for, you know, the 99% of the people, um, that would have absolutely no shot doing it without oxygen. So you see, you know, you see two or three guys every year trying to do that kind of stuff without oxygen. So, you, you know, it's, you know, big, big, big respect for these guys when you see them up there. But this guy was trying to climb load seat, um, didn't happen for him. And he was on his way down and, and it just it wasn't, it wasn't going good. So we spent the night out overnight up there, you know, around 7,500 meters. And, uh, with him. you guys stayed with him? No, no. This was before we saw him. Oh. So we'd seen him the next morning okay. after he had spent that, that night out and he was in really bad shape. As soon as I saw his hand, it was blue, you know, like yeah, turquoise blue. It was dead. It was dead. It was clear to me that hand, that hand was getting chopped off. And so, uh, we had had that conversation before Tendi and I, whereas if we come across someone that's dying, you know, what are we going to do? Because realistically, I'm not going to do much at 8,000 meters just to lower a guy and save a guy. Tendi probably could, uh, cause he's got that incredible skill set and, and he has all the rope, you know, those rope skills of you know, taking someone down from on a knife edge ridge like that is a, is a tricky business. But Sherpas won't make that call because they're not going to sacrifice your money your chance at the summit, your time. So it's really the climber's call to say, hey, Tendi, you know, let's save this guy's life. I'm willing to put my own thing at jeopardy um, to, to, to save this guy. And so we had had that conversation before, which I'm glad we did because we, we stopped at that point and, and uh, I kind of came down. I remember locking eyes with this guy in the bluest eyes. Uh, he started taking off his clothes. Apparently that's the, that's the thing you do when you're getting really hypothermic is you, you start feeling really hot. So he started taking his off his clothes and I, I yelled at him to, to stop and he listened. So he still had some cognitive processing going on. I was like, Tendi, let's, let's save this guy. And we're really close to camp three. So to be fair, I don't think we're ever putting our own, uh, summit bid at stake. Um, and Tendi had some Sherpas come, camp come up and dragged him down into the tent and, uh, hit him with some decks. What's um, that? Decks is like a, a steroid, which is kind of a last resort altitude sickness. Um, drug. It's an injection. You can take it orally as well, but I think at that stage you, you want it, uh, you want it injected, which, which is what we did. And, and, uh, and, you know, got him in his tent and his bag and kept, kept up. And, you know, we had our, so you left him there. We left him there on. and continued on. He was with, you know, there's 50 other people around. There were the Sherpa that helped us get him down. We're staying there and we're good, good buddies attendee. And, and Tendi felt pretty good about, he had seen a lot more of that stuff up in the mountain. He felt 
I don't know if he felt good about it, but anyway, we did what we could do. Mm-hmm. And we kept on going up, and we, we came down two or three days later, and he was still in his tent, frozen to death. Um, he expired in his tent, and he's still there, man. They didn't have, he didn't have insurance. Um, and so, um, you know, getting people down from that high on the, on the mountains, an expensive endeavor. And, uh, his, his company, his company wasn't going to pay the bill to get him down. So he's, he's still there and, and he'll probably be there for, you know, forever. Let's talk about that. That is so interesting. That I didn't know any of this stuff. I mean, so you basically are buying insurance to get your body off of the, the either dead or alive, off of the mountain, dead or alive. Yeah, you get insurance when you when you go on these climbs, and you you fill out a form, and you say if you die on the mountain, um, do you want to be left where you die? Do you want to be kind of moved out of the way so people aren't stepping over, you know, stepping over you and and you know, you know, pushed into a crevasse or whatever? So you're just you're out of the the traffic area, or do you want to be, you know, attempted to be carried down um, and re re you know patriot whatever the word repatriated to repatriated to the u.s yeah so um, i didn't do that i said hey get me off the trail but if i die on the mountain man i i you know i was that was my decision to go up and climb that mountain it was my dream and i didn't want to you know be dragged down and and go go through that whole expensive deal so that was the decision i made how many bodies are you seeing on the way up we there was some snow while we were up there so we didn't see too many there was one that we saw really up close and per- personal on Lhotse, um, right when you get through. And Lhotse is a really cool climb, man. I had a had a tough experience on Everest, I'll tell you about, on Summit Day. Um, but we're, we're heading up Lhotse, and you go up this really cool couloir, which is kind of a, a channel uh, in, in between the stone. And you got, you know, big sheets of granite on both sides of you as you kind of you spire up towards the summit one of the most beautiful climbs I've done through this, you know, steep chute um, that no one has ever skied, but it will be skied at some point. It's that iconic of a couloir. Um, and right when you get to the end, there's this probably 50 foot cliff that you climb just right to the top. Um, and Tendi had told me on the way up, it was actually Tendi's first time up, up Lhotse. So he was pumped as well. I said, Matt, I heard there's a dead guy uh, sitting on the, on the climb. And sure enough, there was a guy, he had just, he was also without oxygen in 2012, he he expired up there. He just sat down. I'm not sure he, if he had summoned or not, but sat down and was kind of just looking out towards this beautiful view with Everest in the foreground um, and all these all these beautiful mountains in, in the background. And and he was just there, frozen, man. And I I was and you literally had to climb like right over this guy. You know, he's 10, 12 inches from your face because you're rock climbing, and he's in the route. You know, sitting in the routes. So you're climbing over him, looking, you know, right into his face. And I remember thinking it, it looked like a movie prop that was placed there yesterday. It was like so perfectly preserved. His skin was perfectly preserved. His eyes, his teeth. I remember his thinking like, man, that guy's got the best set of teeth I've ever seen. It's like perfect. Do you know where he's um, from? Do you know anything about him? I think he was American. You, you can Google him. He's on He's on Google. Someone told me. Uh, Load Seed, Dead Climber, 2012. Did they use his name? Like, did you pass him and say his name and... I didn't like wish him well. Like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know any of this at the time. Um, and I have, I haven't Googled him since then, but I uh, have been told he's on, he's on Google and, um, obviously unfortunate, but, you know, went out doing what he loves and we all make our own decisions in life and you gotta, 
So did you do Lotsi first or Everest first? We did Everest first. Okay. And Lotsi second. And what so, was the tough bit you had on Everest? Yeah, we were going up, uh, obviously climbing with oxygen. And uh, there was a actually like an epidemic of, of bad regulators. Regulators are the part um, on your tank that regulate the amount of oxygen that's coming out of your tank into your, into your mask. And we were using a, a new system. I won't, I won't mention the manufacturer, but there was a new regulator for this, um, for this setup. And we had, they had used the tanks and the mask a bunch, but the regulator was, was fairly new. And so it's kind of our, our company's first, first go at it. And they're on the north side. An expedition had to be canceled because of these things were failing. They were just kick, kicking out the wrong amount of gas. Um, and, and on our side, we, a bunch of climbers had a bunch of issues with them. And so we were up. We got to the uh, south summit, um, changed the tank, uh, or sorry, we got up to the top of the triangular face, changed the tank, got up to the south summit, changed the tank, and then, you know, my tank was good for three or four hours with the amount of oxygen that I was using. And uh, I was going up just the final summit ridge, and as soon as you get to the south summit, it's like you look at this ridge line shaping it's absolutely spectacular man i don't know if you've seen the movie everest but i felt like i had been there before because the way they recreated that i know they did a lot of filming um of that movie on everest uh but they didn't film that high on everest that and, and so they that was all cgi or, or whatever they do but it was like they portrayed that beautifully man because i had felt like i had been there before and it's just this like you know in Yosemite, you're looking down three, 4,000 feet. On Everest, you're looking down like 10, 12, 15,000 feet, man. Way, way, way down. On both sides, it's this knife edge ridge where you kind of go by and it's this little choke point where a Sherpa had run out of oxygen the, a day or two before and his harness was still there, but he just kind of got discombobulated and t- somehow un- unhooked his harness and, 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 and just kind of fell down the, fell down the chute there and so his harness was still there and we kept on going and the last the last probably 100 yards I remember feeling like these guys were moving so slow and I was just starting to get more and more frustrated I was getting super frustrated about why we're moving so slow this guy with the green boots I'll always remember this guy with the green boots that I'm walking behind just moving so slow not in your crew just another team just another team and I couldn't pass him because the slope was so steep I couldn't I couldn't get by him and Finally, uh, finally we make the pass and he kind of, he kind of gives me like a little like, mm, like grunt. Yeah, like everyone's a zombie up there, man. Nobody can really, everybody's brain function is way, way, way down. Even, even when you're on the gas and finally get up there, but I'm still so frustrated, man. And I can't really figure out what's going on. And I finally get up to the summit and I'm frustrated about how many people are up there and there's not really a good place for me to sit. And usually when I get to the top of a mountain, any mountain, I'm emotional, right? Uh, but here I was just pissed. And I remember looking, looking over the other side and seeing the people coming up from Tibet because the two, the two sides, there's two, you know, normal routes, uh, up Everest and they meet right at the summit, which is pretty cool. This convergence of, you know, two, two countries. And, um, anyway, I sit down and I give a little tribute to Nicaragua because this whole Nicaragua thing had kind of kicked off at that point. Um, which was, which was well received and it's cool. I was glad I did it, but I felt like when I was doing it, my words weren't really coming out. You know, my Spanish wasn't really coming out the way I wanted it to. And, and I had taken my glove off for that to happen. And, uh, I, so as soon as I finished, I put my hand back in my glove and 
I couldn't warm my hand up. And I had been on colder mountains, and I, was, I thought it was sore. I was like, man, I, I really think I might have frostbit my, my hands up here. And um, and then my glove flew away. My other glove flew away. And we had extra gloves, and Tendi had extra gloves, so it wasn't a big deal. But you know, I pride myself in being a you know in this kind of stuff, you know, a good mountaineer. And so everything was just kind of falling apart for me, and I couldn't figure it out. And I I was out of gas, so I went down. I sat down. Tendi went up to go take some video um, of, of the thing, and my my vision just starts coming down. Like I, I just go into this tunnel vision, and I'm losing my vision. And I, it's the scaredest I've ever been in my life because you're so far up there. Nobody's coming up to get you. No helicopters. Like that's the one place where you're you're you know you're revving your engine, you're redlining your engine, and you can't break down up there. Right? That's you just can't. And I didn't know I was I was out of auction. We, we thought maybe I was out of auction for ten or fifteen minutes, but my vision closed down. I just screamed for Tendi. He comes running down, checks my checks my oxygen. He's like, "Oh shit, man, you, you're out of oxygen." I was like, "Yeah, man, no shit. I can't I can't really see right now, dude. I'm shaking, and I'm just terrified." Mm-hmm. Boom, 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 boom. So he gets a new bottle. He has another bottle. Puts the bottle on. Sit there for about a minute. He's like, "All right." And by this point, he's he's kind of shaking because we've had such a good six weeks up on the mountain. I felt I felt like one of the strongest guys on the mountain. I felt felt great. And then in within ten minutes, I go to such a liability to myself and others around me, like just like that, it happened in you know a blink of the eye. And so we're going down, and so he says it's time to go, man. Like he's he he's, exactly yeah. He's pretty shaken up, so he's. He's, he's pretty much saying, Hey, we got to go. I'm like, Hey, Tendi, make sure you look at my clips, man. You make sure you look at what I'm doing because I don't, I don't feel confident in anything I'm doing right now. I'm downright scared. And he's like, Yeah. And he's scared too. He's like, His whole thing was like, I just want to get you down. And so we're, we're going down and, you know, you're going through the Hillary step and you're going through all these really cool, iconic little spots and, and it's steep. It's exposed. That's, that's the gnarliest part of the whole climb. And your, my team was coming up, you know, from behind and, you know, they're getting emotional because they're getting towards the top and I'm getting down and, you know, we're giving each other hugs and I'm still just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. Probably takes me, you know, half an hour to feel not normal. Uh, but to a point where I'm like, all right, like we're going to survive this thing. You know, we're going to come out the other end. And then until honestly, man, until I think it took us four hours to get back to the South Coal where I was, you know, felt yeah, relatively normal again. And, uh, you know, like I was telling you, we had, we had come up with this plan to climb, climb Lhotse. And at that point I was just so shaken and I was, I was just scared and, and not sure I, you know, had it in me to, to kind of take, take that, give that next mountain a go and, um, got a few hours of sleep. You don't sleep the night before Everest because of nerves and you're so high and for, for a bunch of reasons, but you, and, and you start at, you know, 10, 10 at night. So you're, you don't really have time to sleep. You start walking at 10 at night to get to the summit. People start for anywhere from probably, you know, seven at night to midnight that night, depending on how fast you are, because the trick is you want to get up there at first light. So you want to have as much possible time to get down. You want to have as much of a safety margin as you can. Right. Um, climbing up in the dark isn't that dangerous or what you know it's not it's not as dangerous as you think because you're on a fixed line so the whole the whole climb you're on a fixed line so you know all these all these other climbs you do are that are you're placing your own gear you're placing your own protection um or you're roped to another person 
you know, Everest is one of those climbs where it's all, you have an ascender or a jumar, which is kind of a, a piece of equipment where you, you can push it up the rope, but it has the teeth that are going down. So as soon as you weight it and you pull it down, like it's, it's stopping on that rope, right? And so in one sense, you know, Everest is pretty straightforward because you're from the second you leave base camp, you're, you're on fixed lines. Um, obviously, you know, as, as I just made clear, the elevation can do some pretty, you know, it changes the game. Um, but so climbing at night's not as, not as gnarly as, as you think. And so you want to get up there right at first light. Um, but you don't want to get up there too early. And so we were moving so well, if we had left at seven at night, you know, we would have got up there in five hours. Uh, and so we would have gotten up there two in the morning and we would have had no view. Um, but if you wait too late, then all of a sudden you're behind. There were probably 80 other climbers that day. Um, and so you're all, you're all of a sudden you're in the back of the pack and you're moving faster than everybody else, but you can't, you know, passing people's a chore at that, at that altitude and that just that terrain, it's tough on summit day. So it's kind of a, you're trying to figure out what the best time is to, to, to make it happen. And so we left, I think we figured out we left at nine and we're probably pretty close towards the back and we passed a few people, but, um, it was just a busy day. It's just a busy day on the lines. So when you get to the top, the area in which everyone's kind of hanging out, like how can it fit everybody who's climbing to the top? Like what's that scene like? It's not huge. Um, it's probably, you know, the size of, um, you know, it's probably 25 yards by 25 yards, you know, on a slope on the, on the Nepalese side. And then the, the Tibetan side is probably half that. Um, but you don't feel really comfortable because there's no flat, you know, it's not a flat. You could slide right off. Totally. As soon as you're, you're roped up the whole time. Yeah. There's no walking around, you know, you're, you're clipped in, you, you know, you put your flag, you get your photos and then you get out of there and you go down. Yeah. Um, but then, so when you're coming back, you're encountering people trying to get up mm-hmm. and it sounds like you can't pass people. So how does that work? Um, so that's, that's tough, man. You, you got, you know, two tethers to your harness. Mm-hmm. Um, You've got one clipped in, you kind of reach around the person that's coming up and you clip in behind them. And then you, so you've always got, and then you unclip your other, you know, and carabiner. They uh, or they can, they can oh, stay because they okay. they're, yeah. they're coming up and you're going down. Or they, you could stay and they could do that, right? So, but you're right, man. It's a, it's like, it's an imperfect game. And it, once it's, it's, you know, it's exponential how that slows, you know, becomes a traffic jam really quick. Um, so we experienced that coming down in the, the Hillary step, the, the rock that used to be, you know, this pretty vertical 40 foot face that was known as the Hillary step. Um, that was like the, the really hard kind of featureless, uh, you know, crux of the climb in the earthquake in 2015 or, or 16, uh, it popped out and it fell down, you know, seven, 8,000 feet right next to camp two. So you can actually see the Hillary step rock, you know, bus size rock at camp two, 8,000 feet below. And it's the kind of the cocoon of where it used to be is now really probably the safest feeling area of the whole summit Ridge because you've got the snow banks on both sides. Um, so it's gotten a lot easier actually, uh, post the, post the earthquake. That was, that was obviously so devastating for, mm. for Nepal. When you, uh, there's a few terms I want to kind of clarify. So when you say like summit bid and like summit rotation, are these like, things that like you sign up for and you're like, okay, we're in this rotation, we're rotation two and you go up and down then rotation three goes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The rotations are, 
like that acclimatization schedule that we we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, summit rotation one. So you go up to camp one, sleep at camp one, come back down to base and camp. The, but is, is there a schedule in which you're allowed to go up for that rotation or is it just, that's no. the term you use for doing that up and back? That's really, that's really the term that you use. Yeah. Oh, okay. you, you do it as a team and it's all weather based. Um, but you have to do those summit rotations one, two, three before you get your final summit kind of bid. Mm-hmm. And so it's, there's no way you can kind of plan for a weather window before your first, you know, summit rotation, right? You, you kind of do these things and you go with the weather and then you, then you stay at base camp and you're acclimated and you're ready to go, but you're waiting for that two or three, four days. You know, you have to go to camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four. Uh, so you need a decent, weather window to get that you know summit bid opportunity so it's definitely a you know definitely a lot of you know uh coordination goes into the the, you know finding that right summit window and we had a great summit window man we probably had five or six days of really stable weather we were really fortunate and and uh obviously really good you know weather predictions now compared to you know 1952 i think is when hillary first climbed it with Tenzing, uh, and obviously they're using, you know, the, the equipment they're using comparison to what we're using. It's just, I mean, those are some of my favorite books reading the, the fortitude that those guys had to get up there back in the day. It just blows my mind. So the equipment that you had nowadays, are you landing and it's there for you because, like, you rented it with, with the, the money you paid to do it? Or is it like you're shipping all because you own it? Uh, most of it we own. Most of it you own from prior climbs and you've got big triple layer boots and the the one thing i didn't have was a big uh 8000 meter suit which is kind of from the hood to the all the way down to the ankles it's a big down suit um that that i didn't have so i i purchased that but pretty much everything else we had and we we carried over with us in two big duffels and and uh yeah so when you when you do make the summit bid you go for it mm. you start at base camp yep and you go camp one, yeah. spend the night. Mm-hmm. Camp two, yeah. spend the night. Yeah. Camp three, spend the night. Yep. And then camp four camp is the last four. one. Su- the South summit, Pole. Back down to camp four, spend yep. the night. Camp three, spend the night. Camp two, camp- and then one, spend the night. Is that kind of how it works? Everything was right until you come back down to camp four, which is the South Pole. Mm-hmm. Some people spend the night there. Most people try to get down to, to camp three or even camp two. Because um, once you're down to camp two, you're in the Western Coombe, and it's pretty mellow. You know, you go, you go from base camp to camp one and you've got the ice fall, which is, which is gnarly. Uh, but then you're in the Western Coombe, which is pretty flat from camp one to camp two. Camp two, it's another few miles up to the base of the Lotsi face. And camp three is halfway up the Lotsi face. Um, and so right when you get on the Lotsi face is really where it starts to get, you know, you're, you're, you feel like you're exposed from, from, from the minute you step on the Lotsi face, camp three up to the South Coal. The South Coal is flat. Uh, cool, cold, expo- you know, exposed as far as weather's concerned. Um, so most people, you know, they'll go up to camp one, sleep, camp two, sleep, camp three, sleep, south coal, sleep, summit, back to the south coal, down to camp three, and if they can, down to camp two and sleep that night. And then the next day, hike out. Um, and then more and more people are taking the helicopter out from base camp and hiking back, you know, that the full three or four day hike out. That Did you hike out? I did. Yeah, I hiked out a different trail. I wanted to see that place is is so rad shape, and you, you love it over there, man. The there's no roads up in the in the Nepalese high country. Every, everything's transported by a human, right, by a porter, and so uh, it creates these in, 
incredibly beautiful valleys that that are uh, you know it, it, I, I had to see hiking in I knew you know summit or not I wanted to spend a bunch more time just just exploring what was kind of going going on over there what was the first thing you did when you came back after you had accomplished the, the double face I mean what it sounds like love sea was kind of like a little bit easier for you or was it harder or? so everything that Everest kind of wasn't Everest was just another person in a big line of people right I mean the whole experience was was you know incredible obviously but the actual summit day of Everest was tough for me because it was you're in a line people are moving really slow people are grumpy and then obviously I had my oxygen issues at the top um, and I would and it, it and it freaked me out to be honest I had I, I just had a tough day and so you know rather than running off the mountain I was so pumped to that we decided to give Lotzi a go. We got some sleep and we went up Lotzi and it was just like, you know, why are we climb mountains, right? To be out there in a place where there's nobody else around you. You're not in a line of people. You're looking back on Everest. Uh, felt really good. Got to the summit of Lotzi. You know, my brain was full of oxygen. All the emotions I didn't have on Everest came out. So it was a, it was a really cool kind of, I was really glad we did Lotzi uh, af- after Everest because it was, it gave me the opportunity to kind of enjoy the, the summits and the accomplishment that we had just achieved, and, and uh, it was a special time for me and Tendi. Was it just you and Tendi who did loads here, or did your whole team go with you? Uh, just Tendi and I. And yeah. that's like what, like an eight-hour round trip, or like 12 hours, 16? Uh, so from the South Coal, we woke up again at, we got we got down from, so we went up to Everest, we left at nine, I think, went up to Everest, probably got down at, you know, one in the afternoon and slept and we hadn't slept the night before, so we, we got that six hours of sleep in that your body needs so bad. Um, and then we woke up, had a little talk. What do you want to do? How do you feel? Uh, let's not run off this mountain. You know, we came this far. We're in position. I feel good. You know, we had a tough half an hour up there, um, but we've had a really good six weeks. So if you feel comfortable, I feel comfortable. Let's give this thing a go. Like, I'm, like I said, I'm so glad that we did. Uh, woke up at, you know, probably woke up at 10 p.m., um, went down you actually have to go down to just above camp three is the Lotzi high camp um, and there are a couple other climbers uh, that were trying to climb Lotzi including a couple other that were trying to climb Lotzi without oxygen um, and it's man when you pass those guys it's like you can look into their soul when you're looking into their eyes like it's just you can just see their brain swimming for oxygen man the only question is you know how much further how much further how we doing uh, and you kind of want to be like, oh, dude, you're, you know, you're doing good. You're almost there, even though you're just like, oh, there's no, this guy's got no shot, man. And, and uh, the two, I think we passed two or three guys trying to do it without O's, and none of them made it that day. Um, oh, Jesus ooh. Christ. We got up at, if we left at 10 or 11 that night, we got up to the summit of Lotzi at 6, I think 6 a.m., and we had got up to Everest at 7 a.m. the previous day, so we got it in 23 hours, and the goal was 24 hours. Nice, so dude. Congratulations. Cool, cool accomplishment. And, and uh, then went down to Camp 3 and made it down to Camp 2, and then the next day we went down to base camp. And you're just ecstatic when you've accomplished that goal and you like start drinking Jack Daniels out of the bottle or what? Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of that. Uh, it's, it's, mountaineering so cool because it's such a team deal, right? It's, it's individual in a sense as you're climbing, but you're around the same group of people for two months, right? So you're so pumped, so pumped for everybody. And, and, uh, it's something that you live with, you know, for the rest of your life and you tell your grandkids about and, 
and I never have a good reason as to why. You know, people ask why. Um, Krakauer in Into Thin Air has a really good, uh, really good way of kind of explaining it. His own words, you know, it's a, de- it's a definitive goal. Um, you're there for your own reasons. Um, but I don't, I'm, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't have as good an answer as he does. I, I just, for me, that's where I'm my happiest. And that's when I'm thinking the clearest. That's when I'm sleeping my best. Um, that's where I have the most perspective, right? I'm just a little dot in this huge, in this huge world. And, and at the end of the day, you know, as you go through these, you know, long expeditions, you either, you know, it's a net gain or a net loss. You're either get, getting, you know, your utils either go up or down. And I come out of those, those climbs so happy and so clear and just so stoked on life that, um, you know, it's, for me, it's worth it. For me, I know that it's worth it. And if I had a buddy saying, Hey man, let's go, you know, let's go do another one of these. I'd, I'd probably have to give it a good long thought because I, I, I just love it, man. Yeah. I love it. Is there a quote that motivates you to like continue on when you're in moments like that and scared and like, fuck, things are going wrong or like, I can't do this right now that you can maybe share with the audience and motivate them to take that first step out into the unknown? Oh man, there's so many good quotes. I wish I could remember them. You know, um, just come up with your own. But you the one I, I say it all the time, man, life's just so short. Life is so, so short that, you know, you can't, whatever you love to do, we get so, you know, into what we're doing and we've got our car payment and our house payment and our insurance and so many reasons why we can't go do what we would love to do. And, you know, my biggest fear is waking up one day in a blink of an eye and man, I'm whatever age and I can't go do these things anymore. Right. Like I just, I just physically can't. So, um, I know it's, I know it's hard to take the time away and, 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 you know, make, make the commitment, but you know, life, life really is short, man. For me, it's, you know, it's getting out there and doing it while, while we can. So just real quick then, I mean, new things on the horizon, you know, you've left Nicaragua, you're here in California for at least a year. You're starting a, um, sports recovery business called Pono 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 yeah um, just can you describe real quick to the audience what that is and, and, and what your vision is on that yeah it's it's kind of a sports recovery center where as you know my journey's gone on I've figured out what works best for my body um, I love really really good massage and I find that I can't always get it um, so Pono Pono is just a way where you you know you go into this nice nice little kind of locker room think of you know the chicago bulls locker room or gold you know whatever, whatever sport those guys have access to these incredible facilities with these incredible personal trainers and the technology that those guys have these days um, is amazing right lebron's 33 years old now and he's playing better than he ever has he's played more games last year than he ever had um, and it's and it's partially because of genetics but it's also partially because of the technology and equipment and personality that he's Know, that, that he is, he's capable of using. And so kind of a way of providing the general public, uh, your own kind of, uh, you know, environment, um, that you're not, we're not really, you know, we're not really privy to, privy to use, um, you know, previously, but, but Pono Pono is kind of a way to get those facilities into a, into a program that works for, you know, the, the weekend warrior or the CrossFit guy or the triathlete or the, you know, you know, 
you it's giving people access to the, the locker room of the Lakers exactly. without having to be a Lakers player. Yeah, exactly. That's epic, man. Exactly. I think, you know, that's a, a very viable business here, especially in Newport Beach, Southern California. And yeah. I wish you all the best, brother. Thanks, Jay. Man, I hope we get some... Uh, some waves in here together while I'm down, man. I'm it's pumped. It's not going to be Nicaragua, but it will be fun. Yeah, it'll be Newport. It'll Thanks be for sharing, brother. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Cheers, man. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of Misfits and Rejects. I love sharing these stories with you and hope that they're inspiring you to take that first step out there and start designing the life that you've always dreamed of. Remember, you can support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. Any donation helps. If you can't, no worries. Subscribing to the podcast, writing a review for the podcast on whatever podcast player you utilize to listen is super helpful. Um, so I really appreciate you, and I think you are all so very beautiful. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.